are going to conclude our series looking at the life of Abraham. It's a series that we entitled Faith for Fruit. Uh, And really today we've arrived at the defining moment of Abraham's story, Um, his final chapter, if you like, the the crescendo, at least of his mortal life here on earth. And uh, as we're going to open up the book and see his final chapter, what we'll find is pretty shocking. Uh, But actually, it's one of the nuances of life that we often find glory and beauty in the most unexpected places. Take, for example, the photo that's going to come up here. Uh, This bad boy caterpillar. Now, um, (laughs) if you were to show this photo to my three-year-old daughter, Chloe, she would probably say something like, Ah, Daddy, it's really yucky, which she actually did this morning when I showed it to her. Uh, she's really expressive, and so, but she'd also say, I really love it though, Daddy, I love it, I really do, because she loves everything at the moment. Um, but if you were then to show her the next photo, uh, she would look at that butterfly and say, oh, Daddy, it's so beautiful, she'd want to hold it, she'd probably pick off the wings, but you know, we'd try and stop her from doing that, um, and she'd just say, Daddy, it's the most beautiful thing ever, because she likes beautiful things. Uh, she'd be mesmerized by its beauty. The thing is, though, Chloe would never have thought that something as beautiful as that would have come from something so unexpected unless she was taught to look long enough. None of us would do. You have to to look long enough to realize that something so beautiful could come from something so unexpected. Let me give you another example. Uh, Now, (laughs) you could never call this baby cute, really, (laughs) could you? I mean, uh, I guess... People might go to the hospital and, and say, oh, he's a really cute baby, but deep down be thinking, don't send me any photos. Um, and, and yet, ladies and gentlemen, this baby became this man. So, um, beauty in unexpected places. Maybe the exception that proves the rule. How about, let me give you a better example. Let me show you this. This, this is uh, the Arctic, the northernmost part of the Earth. And although it possesses a, sh- a sort of glory for sure, it actually looks so fierce, doesn't it? It looks so cold and callous and uninviting. And yet, this is where one of the world's most breathtaking sights can be seen. The northern lights. The aurora doesn't perhaps project so well on the screen as it does on a laptop, but it's just amazing. And year on year, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people travel to the Arctic and make the cold, arduous journey in order to get a glimpse of the most beautiful and mesmerizing sight really in the planet. It's a heart-moving phenomenon. The most hardened cynic would say it's almost a spiritual phenomenon as you see God's artwork paint the sky. Beauty in unexpected places. And today, as we together look at the defining climax of Abraham's story, we're going to see something which on first glance will appear cold and callous and uninviting and shocking. Uh, The type of thing that has caused people in the past to glimpse at it momentarily and turn away in disgust. To say, how could a good God possibly ask that of someone? It's too much. Some famous people like uh, Richard Dawkins Use it as an example to say, you think your God's good? But there are people who don't look. You see, if you look for long enough and true enough, then you'll see something this morning so beautiful, so captivating, it will warm your heart and move you forever. Like the northern lights streaming into the desolate Arctic and painting it with beauty. 
You see, Abraham himself leaves this climactic experience not feeling hurt, not feeling confused, not feeling abused, not questioning the goodness of God. Now, actually, he's convinced of the goodness of God more than ever as he leaves this scene this morning. He, he goes away, a man full of worship, full of love, just captivated with this God who he encounters. Abraham's whole life has been a story of discovering who the living God is. That's what we've seen over these last few months as we've looked at this series. He's discovered through many trials and many ups and downs the love of God and the promise of God and his power to fulfill the promises. And the goodness of God has been worked out for Abraham, especially in the gift of a son, a miracle son, Isaac. This was a boy born to an old man and an old woman whose biological clock had well and truly ticked out. And yet they had a miracle son at the 11th hour. And two weeks ago, we saw how the arrival of Isaac changed everything, revealing the grace of God to an old man and an old woman. And we saw how Isaac really is a prototype of Jesus. Really, the birth of Isaac is all about the birth of the, the true promised son, the, the true miracle child that was to come. And here in the final chapter of Abraham's story, in 1900 BC, Abraham and Isaac, his son, climb a mountain and have an encounter with God. And they see God as they've never seen God before. They see Jesus. In this moment, uh, the 2,000 years that separate the life of Abraham from the life of Jesus of Nazareth momentarily disappear. And they see him. And they're captivated by his beauty. They see something of what he's going to do for them and for their descendants and for the whole world and for you and for me. And they're just blown away by it. So much so that when Jesus did walk the earth 2,000 years later, he says in John 8, 56, that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's here on the mountain this morning in the final chapter of Abraham's life, that he really saw Jesus and he filled him with gladness, the deepest gladness. And so this morning, we're going to look ourselves. We're going to look and see what we find there. But you've got to remember the whole time through that what we read this morning was, was an event that happened and was written down thousands of years before Jesus ever walked the earth. And yet it's all about him. So Gus is going to come up and read it to us now. Uh, the reason why Gus is is because it's a, it's a powerful story, and Gus has got a real gifting in conveying something of the power of stories. And also I wanted to see how he'd manage walking around with that sticking. So Gus is going to come and read to us. Okay, we're, uh, we're reading from Genesis 22. You can follow it on the screen behind me. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a, a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac 
and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. Father, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they'd reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but... The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from a second, for a second time and he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, in brackets, as he said he would. And they set off together. For Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Thanks, Gus. Fantastic. Wow, intense. Um, what we're going to do now is follow Abraham step by step on his journey up the mountain to see what he sees. And so we're going to start by looking at the climb, and then the view, and then the descent. Firstly, the climb. And the first shocking words that we Read in the beginning of this sequence of events is God saying to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. It is impossible to overstate the trauma of hearing those words for Abraham. The heartache and the potential for panic must have been huge. My son? You want me to take my son? The one that, that you gave me, the miracle child, and sacrifice him and do this terrible thing? I've got two girls, Anna Rose and Chloe Grace. Uh, if I can do anything in my power to prevent them ever experiencing pain, I will. I'm not a perfect parent. I'm, I'm just not. But it's a natural response. And yet, seemingly, without question, Abraham ups and goes towards the sacrifice. Doesn't give any loud objection. Why? Why not? Well, Abraham has journeyed with God for around 50 years at this point. He knows him. He knows he's unlike any other God we've heard. You see, Abraham was surrounded by many peoples who 
did sacrifice human beings as offerings to God. It was commonplace. In the land of Canaan, where he was uh, called to move into, even child sacrifice wasn't that uncommon, history tells us. But Abraham's God, Yahweh, is not like any other God, not at all. See, the Bible is clear, clear that such practices are completely abhorrent to Yahweh. In 2 Kings 16, to 3, 16 verse 3, it says that child sacrifice is despicable practice to God. And he calls his people to drive it out wherever they go. In numerous places in the Bible, God condemns the suggestion that human sacrifice could be offered up to him. That can't remove sin. That can't please God. He can't delight in that. And Abraham knows God. He's journeyed with him a long way. He knows that God is good. He he knows God is true to every one of his promises. And Isaac was a big promise. So he knows that God must have something in store. He must have something planned, although Abraham could hardly see it for himself. Abraham just seems so confident, in fact, that this really won't be the destruction of Isaac. Did you see that? That's why in verse 5, when Abraham and Isaac leave the hiking party to go up the mountain on their own, Abraham says, oh, we're going to go and worship, and then we're both going to come back. Do you see it? In verse 5, he says, we will worship, and we will come back to you. We Him and Isaac. Later in the passage, Isaac points out, Dad, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, where's the sacrifice, old man? And Abraham just quietly and confidently says, the Lord will provide. He just knows God. He just knows him. He knows what God is like and what he's not like. He knows God must have something planned. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it tells us that Abraham was so convinced of the goodness of God that he figured out even if Isaac was to be sacrificed, God could raise him from the dead and would do. Abraham knew God. And so he interpreted this most ugly of experiences in the light of God's goodness rather than interpreting God's character in the light of this ugly circumstance. I wonder, do you do the same? Uh, Do you? Does your understanding of who God is dictate how you see your situation or does your situation dictate how you see who God is? That's the first thing we see. What what, what next do we see as we walk with Abraham on his journey? Well, we see that God calls him to take a three-day journey. He doesn't just say, find Isaac, kill him. He doesn't say that. No, there's a journey involved. There's a process. There's preparation takes two days to walk the 45 miles from Beersheba to Moriah. It won't be until the third day that they arrive and go up the mountain. And the third day is often very significant in Scripture. In several places, a life-changing encounter with God requires two days preparation for the third day moment. Okay, so in Exodus 19 and verse 11, uh, God commands the people of Israel to consecrate themselves and prepare themselves thoroughly for two straight days because on the third day God was going to descend Mount Sinai and they were going to see him it was going to be a big encounter they had to be prepared Jesus' disciples uh, for two days after his crucifixion hid away while God prepared them though they didn't know it for a third day encounter with the risen Jesus 
Abraham and Isaac are sent on a two-day journey precisely because the third day was all about they're going to see God and they're going to encounter God. That was God's plan. Maybe some of you are in a tough moment at the moment, not knowing that perhaps God's got a third day in store. What's the next thing we see? What's the third thing as we climb with Abraham and Isaac? Well, we see that he doesn't just send them on a three-day journey anyway. He tells them to go to Mount Moriah. Now, that's interesting because Mount Moriah was in Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 3 and verse 1 tells us that centuries later, Solomon, who was one of the great kings, would build the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So here, Abraham and Isaac are sent to Jerusalem to offer up his son, his only son, the, the perfect place for such a holy sacrifice to happen. You see, Mount Moriah would later, under the Romans, be called Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. This is where God's only beloved son would be executed 2,000 years later. God was sending Abraham to offer up his only son in the very site where God's only son would be offered up. You see, Isaac is a foreshadow of the greater son who was to come and was to die and was on the third day to be raised. Whether Isaac and Abraham were in the exact same peak as where Jesus was crucified is debated by scholars. It really doesn't matter. What is clear is that God was bringing Abraham and Isaac and us through them to holy ground, to the place where he would reveal his unfathomable glory and his unimaginable love through his son. That's the third thing we see. What's the fourth thing we see as we journey up Mount Moriah um, with Abraham? And this is, uh, this is a, I think this is the mountain, that photo. Um, what we see is that Abraham catches a sight of Mount Moriah in verse 4, and then it's just like he fixes his face towards it, and he takes his son, and he goes, and they leave the companions behind. No one else is able to go with them. Uh, how his heart must have been beating out of his chest as he and his son just take the lonely journey, leaving others behind, that they can see the place of tragedy, the place of encounter. And here, too, we see Christ. For the Bible tells us that Jesus fixed his sight towards Jerusalem, and just progress towards it, knowing that was going to be the place of his glorification, even his death, his suffering. And actually, as we read the Gospels also, the, the final week of Jesus, he just appears increasingly just more of a lonely figure, actually. More and more just alone, as he and his Father and the Holy Spirit journey towards his destiny, but no one else can really come. That's why Jesus says, to his disciples, where, am I, where I am going, you, you cannot follow. And he speaks of the cup he was going to drink, which they just couldn't drink. The, the fierce cup of the wrath of God. The cup of the fierce, loving anger of God in pursuit of everything that turns itself against the beauty and the life that God so freely wants to offer. He, knew, he saw that cup, that cup of rejection. He, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was left all alone. All alone, as he proceeded towards that solitary place of sacrifice, just him and his father. How beautiful, the love of God. It's what we see on the climb to Moriah. What else do we see? Well, 
we see that Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice up Moriah. Okay, it tells us that in verse 6. Uh, Abraham lays the wood on Isaac. Now, I, I think on first reading, we, always, we, we can think, that's just plain mean. You know, he's, what, don't make the toddler carry the wood. Or, you know, that's out of order. Bad parenting. He needs to come to our, <laughs> whoop, uh, our little whoopee training program that we really love. Um, but scholars say that Isaac, he was not a young boy, but a young man, actually, at this point. That's kind of the hidden context of the text. We get told that Adrian spoke last week about uh, Isaac and his, uh, his encounter with the other son that Abraham had. You can listen to it online. It's a fantastic preach. Um, and at that point, Isaac was three. And then it says, some time passed. You know, a long time passed, I think it says in the scriptures. And then we get to this next chapter. Well, um, Jewish authorities, such as Josephus, who's an ancient historian, Jewish historian, says that uh, Isaac was probably about 25 years old at this point. Okay? In fact, the Jewish midrash called Genesis Rabbah, which I looked at a little bit um, this week, it, it's a book of commentaries, a collection of commentaries from Jewish rabbis throughout the millennia, really, about the scriptures. And they say that he might have been as old as in his 30s. That's the situation. He's fully grown in his prime. Abraham's an old man, actually. He's about 125. In fact, in the same Jewish midrash, it observes by these Jewish, not Christian scholars, that as we see Isaac carrying the wood on his back, it's like watching a condemned man carrying his stake of execution on his shoulder. Or like watching a condemned man carry his cross. And it, it, is, it is like that. It's just like that. Because in John 19, 17, it tells us that Jesus carried his own cross up the streets of Golgotha, of Calvary, of Jerusalem, to get to the place of the skull. Just as Isaac had done there. In Isaac, we see Christ. And then as we reach the end of their climb in verse 9, Isaac is bound to the altar and prepared for sacrifice. And the most striking thing is, he doesn't struggle. We've already seen that. He's a man in his prime against Abraham who is weak and frail and old. If they're going to have a fight, Abraham's not going to come out too well. But they, d they don't. Isaac just allows himself to be strapped down and bound. This is not child abuse or bullying as Richard Dawkins so foolishly comments without knowing the scriptures. He scoffs at the story as if it's evidence against a good God, whereas Isaac is completely complicit. He consents to being offered to God. He is willing. No one is taking his life from him by force. Can you see Jesus in Isaac? You see, in John 10, 18, it tells us that Jesus is the, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And then Jesus says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and to take it back up again. It's not that God the Father forces Jesus to do something against his will. No, no. Just as Abraham didn't force Isaac, but Isaac chose the altar, so Jesus chose the cross. He chose it to pour himself out, even staring in the cup of agony to pour himself out so that all of his righteousness and beauty and life could swallow up all of our sin and all of our rejection, all of our death. All that is his, given to us. All that is ours, taken by him. 
This is what the climb to Moriah shows us. It shows us Christ and the spectacular love of God poured out. So having made the climb, what do we see on the mountaintop? What view? Is there any beauty there? Well, we see in verse 11, just as Abraham is about to slay his beloved son Isaac, the angel of the Lord steps in on God's behalf and says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't lay, don't lay a finger on the boy. Don't hurt him. Now I know, I know you love me. I know you fear me now. I know you know me. That you didn't even deny me your own son. At the mountaintop, Isaac is given back to Abraham, and Abraham's confidence in the goodness of God is completely vindicated. But still there's an altar that's been set up. And still Abraham knows a sacrifice needs to be made. After all, he's in the presence of holy God. He's on the mountain of God. And Abraham knows he's not a good man. He's not. I mean, he's the one who gave his wife to other men, pretending that she was his sister. He was the one who slept with other women in order to get the child that God had promised through Sarah. He's the one who used to worship pagan gods. This might not have been his first brush with human sacrifice. It might not have been. Just don't know. And yet he's in the presence of holy God. And God is pure and perfect and wonderful. Do you know, sometimes um, when I get up and go to work in the morning, in a hospital morning, I have to get up early, it's dark, get my clothes on, and I look in the mirror and think, yeah, I look okay, actually. Um, <laughs> um, step outside into the light, and there's this huge blob of toothpaste. And I, I'd never seen it. And that happens incredibly frequently. <laughs> or like babysick or you know, something. This was a stepping into the light moment for Abraham. You know, in, in the context of the holiness and the presence of God, toothpaste everywhere. That's what he sees. Something needs to be done to remove his stains of imperfection, to enable him to stay in the presence of the God who he's come so much to love. And then what happens? Verse 13 happens. Abraham once again lifts up his eyes on Mount Moriah. And this time, he doesn't see a place of tragedy, but a place of provision. He sees the lamb that God has provided. A ram caught by its horns in the bushes. A lamb with horns digging into its head. God gives a lamb in Isaac's place. Can can you see Christ at Moriah? You see, 2,000 years later, the God's own son, the son he loves, would wear a crown of thorns on Calvary, on Mount Moriah, marking him out for the sacrifice because the son of God would also be the lamb of God. John calls him, John the Baptist calls him the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's the perfect spotless lamb. It was God's delight to call out to Abraham and stop him from even laying a finger on Isaac because he loves Abraham and he loves Isaac, God would not allow Abraham to watch Isaac wounded as a sacrifice, knowing that he would watch his own son wounded as a sacrifice. He would look on the mountain and see his dearly loved, perfect, sinless son wounded for us, for our healing. The the father goes on, the, the father on that mountain rather would actually turn his face away when all from all eternity, he's just delighted to turn his face towards his son. As the hymn expresses how great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. His wounds, which mar the chosen one, bring many sons to glory. 
Jesus says in John 12, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it can bear no fruit. It remains alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. Gave up all that is his in order to share all that is his with us, that there might be many sons. Many sons. This is our God, our God of love. But you may still be asking why. You may still, even now, possibly gaze at Moriah and still see just too much horror mixed in with beauty. And there is horror there. But why the cross? Why Moriah? Why does it have to be a Moriah? You need to understand something about God. You need to understand something about him. The Bible says in 1 John that God is love. We sung about it during worship. What does that even mean, though? Well, it means from all eternity, God has existed in the most mesmerizing and dynamic and beautiful, loving relationship. A, a single, lonely God couldn't do that, but our God is triune, three in one, perfectly united in a loving relationship. The Father, from all eternity, has been pouring out his love and his life to the Son, and the Son, in return, is just delighted to look at his father and to be poured it back out to him. And the spirit has been swept up in it, communicating the love and the life of God from one to the other. This is the Trinity. This is what the church fathers uh, coined a Greek word to describe, calling it the uh, perichoresis, meaning the dance of God. Each person delighting in the other, moving around the other. It's beautiful, inseparable union of love. Uh, the love of God is by its very nature self-giving and life-giving and drawing others in. The Father gives himself to the Son, his love and his life. And the Son gives himself back to the Father, delighting to look towards him. And the Spirit communicates the love and the life of the Father to the Son and vice versa. It's self-giving. It's life-giving. It draws others in. Very different to the inwardly curved love that we so often have when it's all about me. And there are moments in the Bible when this is vividly penetrates and, and bursts into life, like at Jesus' baptism, when uh, the father suddenly can't contain himself and says, this is my son whom I love. And the spirit descends upon him. And Jesus is lifted up. And John the Baptist sees, this is the son of God. The Trinity comes into play. And we see it in scripture. It's not a theological tag on. Oh, the Christians believe in that funny thing called the Trinity, which they can't really explain. No, 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 this is truth and it's all throughout scripture and it's essential to our understanding of who God is the father loves the fun the son he loves the fun as well probably <laughs> the fun that he has with his son um, they've had so much fun he loves the son in fact it was because of his love for Jesus that he created all things to draw others into his delight for Jesus and so in Colossians 1:16, it says all things were created by Jesus and through Jesus. I think we read it this morning, didn't we? He, he should have the supremacy. All things were made by him and for him. Well, what's that all about? It means that creation was a burst into being. It burst into being as a result of the intense love of the Father for the Son, such that that love drove creative activity. And actually, that love directed all that creativity for the glory of the Son, because the Father so loves the Son. The Father figures others have just got to see him. Now, I'm a bit like that with Chloe. Like, Seriously, she's, she's bouncing up and down on a trampoline. You've got to see this. But the father loves his son and everything about him is beautiful. Self-giving, life-giving love. He wants to draw others in. 
But get this, as Jesus is approaching the cross on John 17, he begins to pray to his Father. And he actually prays for us too, for you and for me. Okay, You can read it in John 17. And he asks the Father, Father, will you glorify me now with the glory that I've always had with you? What's the glory he's always had from all eternity with God? It's the love of God, self-giving, life-giving, drawing others in. And then Jesus says this. He says, I have given them, that's us, the glory that you gave me. And then he says, I have loved them even as you loved me. Jesus has loved us in the same way the Father has loved him. Self-giving, life-giving, drawing us in to the very heart of God. And so at Calvary, 1 Peter 13 tells us, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. It's all to bring you in. He was offered up without sin to remove our sin and separation. This is the glory of the cross. This is the beauty of Mount Moriah. This is colors more beautiful than the northern lights sweeping into the most desolate scene in order to paint it with beauty and glory as the son of the living God pours himself out just as his father had always poured himself out for him in order to draw us into the love of God, the dance of God. We can dance. It's not just 29th September at the Cayley, 5 o'clock, be there. It's not, it's not just that. Martin Luther says this, may we look into the Father heart and sense how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts, setting them aglow with thankfulness. That's the view from the mountain. That's the view. A wonderful, loving Father, a beautiful, willing Son, a life-giving Spirit, all poured out to draw us in. This is what we see. Abraham did well to rename Mount Moriah the Lord will provide. He did well to exclaim, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided because it has been. It happened in Calvary 2,000 years ago to draw you in. To draw you in. So as we close, what's the response to Mount Moriah? How must we descend? Two things. Firstly, we respond like Abraham in being willing to give up everything to this great God demands our all. Abraham was right to entrust and give over his only son to God. Why? Because God's never going to treat harshly that which we so value. He's not, he wasn't going to do harm to the precious son. We can give him everything. He's so willing to give to us. Are there areas in your life that you've not given? Are you all in? Maybe you're not a Christian here. Maybe you're saying, this is, this is new to, news to me. Maybe you're thinking, I thought Christianity was something else. God says, come in. Give me everything. Your sin. You know, repent from it. Give it to me. Don't carry that burden anymore. Know my love in my life. Maybe, you, maybe for you it's something else. Maybe it's you need to just be all in with your gifts or all in with your possessions or all in with your reputation or whatever it is. It doesn't mean you become a hermit that stays in church all the time. No, no, no. Far, far, far from it means that you're always looking to be like your father, poured out. Secondly then, as we descend Moriah, we need to hear, like Abraham, the blessing of God. In verses 15 to 19, God commands the most almighty blessing over Abraham once again, saying to him, your descendants are going to be more than the stars in the sky. He was ready for a renewal, even uh, an upgrading of the promise. God's promise to Abraham can be summarized like this. Through you now, I will draw many, many, many others in. 
Oasis Church, that's God's command to us too. The same command. Go out and multiply. Draw others in. Having seen him, having tasted him, keep looking, keep tasting, keep, keep being with him, but then draw others in. Don't keep this to yourself. Love like he loves. Self-giving love in your place of work, in your university. Life-giving love. Love that draws others in. Doesn't exclude anyone. Jesus says in John's gospel that people will know we're his disciples by our love. What is faith for fruit all about? Seeing our great God. Giving all to him. Drawing others in. Drawing others in. We're going to finish there by taking communion. Um, and this is an opportunity to respond very physically and very practically to what we've heard. Uh, to take hold of Jesus again and unite yourself to him. To almost take him right in. There's nothing special about the bread and juice. You can munch on it afterwards. No one's going to be offended or thinking you're irreligious. Um, but God did provide us the bread to show Jesus' body broken, the wine, his blood poured out in order to draw us into the love of God. So if you're not a Christian, this, is, this has been news for you, but you say, I really want to. I want to know this Jesus. I'd encourage you, take the bread and the juice as a response of saying, yes, I unite myself to him now. I'm going to welcome him into my heart. And then come and find me or uh, Adrian or Gus or Jane or someone afterwards, and we'd love to talk to you about this. Okay. Um, so the band are going to come up and play a song for us. The welcome people, if you would kindly get to the uh, communion station so that you can pour out some juice for us. And then uh, one by one, we can come and take some bread and some juice.